Chapter Three, Section One of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Jacob Baker, two thousand seven. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One, by Karl Marx, translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part One: Commodities and Money, Chapter Three: Money or the Circulation of Commodities, Section One: The Measure of Values. Throughout this work, I assume, for the sake of simplicity, gold as the money commodity. The first chief function of money is to supply commodities with the material for the expression of their values, or to represent their values of magnitudes of the same denomination, qualitatively equal and quantitatively comparable. It thus serves as a universal measure of value. And only by virtue of this function does gold, the equivalent commodity par excellence, become money. It is not money that renders commodities commensurable, just the contrary. It is because all commodities as values are realized human labor, and therefore commensurable, that their values can be measured by one and the same special commodity, and the later be converted into the common measure of their values, i.e., into money. Money, as a measure of value, is the phenomenal form that must of necessity be assumed by that measure of value which is imminent in commodities, labor, time. Footnote. The question, why does not money directly represent labor time, so that a piece of paper may represent, for instance, X hours labor, is at bottom the same as the question why, given the production of commodities, must products take the form of commodities? This is evident, since their taking the form of commodities implies their differentiation into commodities and money. Or why cannot private labor, labor for the account of private individuals, be treated as its opposite, immediate social labor? I have elsewhere examined thoroughly the utopian idea of labor money in a society founded on the production of commodities. Local citato, page 61, sequentia. On this point, I will only say further that Owen's labor money, for instance, is no more money than a ticket for the theater. Owen presupposes directly associated labor, a form of production that is entirely inconsistent with the production of commodities. The certificate of labor is merely evidence of the part taken by the individual in the common labor, and of his right to a certain portion of the common produce destined for consumption. But it never enters into Owen's head to presuppose the production of commodities, and at the same time by juggling with money to try to evade the necessary conditions of that production. End footnote. The expression of the value of a commodity in gold, x commodity A equals y money commodity, is its money form or price. A single equation, such as one ton of iron equals two ounces of gold, now suffices to express the value of the iron in a socially valid manner. There is no longer any need for this equation to figure as a link in the chain of equations that express the values of all other commodities, because the equivalent commodity gold now has the character of money. The general form of relative value has resumed its original shape of simple or isolated relative value. On the other hand, the experimented expression of relative value, the endless series of equations, has now become the form peculiar to the relative value of the money commodity. The series itself, too, is now given and has social recognition in the prices of actual commodities. We have only to read the quotations of a price list backwards to find the magnitude of the value of money expressed in all sorts of commodities. 
but money itself has no price. In order to put it on an equal footing with all other commodities in this respect, we should be obliged to equate it to itself as its own equivalent. The price or money form of commodities is, like their form of value generally, a form quite distinct from their palpable bodily form. It is, therefore, a purely ideal or mental form. Although invisible, the value of iron, linen, and corn has actual existence in these very articles. It is ideally made perceptible by their equality with gold, a relation that, so to say, exists only in their own heads. Their owner must therefore lend them his tongue, or hang a ticket on them, before their prices can be communicated to the outside world. Footnote. Savages and half-civilized races use the tongue differently. Captain Perry says of the inhabitants of the west coast of Baffin's Bay, quote, In this case, he refers to barter, they licked it, the thing represented to them, twice to their tongues, after which they seemed to consider the bargain satisfactorily concluded, end quote. In the same way, the eastern Eskimo licked the articles they received in exchange. If the tongue is thus used in the north as the organ of appropriation, no wonder that, in the south, the stomach serves as the organ of accumulated property, and that a kafir estimates the wealth of a man by the size of his belly. That the kafirs know what they are about is shown by the following. At the same time that the official British Health Report of 1864 disclosed the deficiency of fat-forming food among a large part of the working class, a certain Dr. Harvey, not, however, the celebrated discoverer of the circulation of the blood, made a good thing by advertising recipes for reducing the superfluous fat of the bourgeoisie and aristocracy. End footnote. Since the expression of the value of commodities in gold is a merely ideal act, we may use for this purpose imaginary or ideal money. Every trader knows that he is far from having turned his goods into money when he has expressed their value in a price or in imaginary money, and that it does not require the least bit of real gold to estimate in that metal millions of pounds worth of goods. When, therefore, money serves as a measure of value, it is employed only as imaginary or ideal money. This circumstance has given rise to the wildest theories. Footnote. See Karl Marx. Zur Kritik, etc. Theorien von der Massenheit des Gelder, page 53, Sequentia, and footnote. But although the money that performs the functions of a measure of value is only ideal money, price depends entirely upon the actual substance that is money. The value, or in other words, the quantity of human labor contained in a ton of iron, is expressed in imagination by such a quantity of the money commodity as contains the same amount of labor as the iron. According, therefore, as the measure of value is gold, silver, or copper, the value of the ton of iron will be expressed by very different prices, or will be represented by very different quantities of those metals, respectively. If, therefore, two different commodities, such as gold and silver, are simultaneously measures of value, all commodities have two prices, one a gold price, the other a silver price. These exist quietly side by side, so long as the ratio of the value of silver to that of gold remains unchanged, say, at fifteen to one. Every exchange in their ratio disturbs the ratio which exists between the gold prices and the silver prices of commodities, and thus proves by facts that a double standard of value is inconsistent with the functions of a standard. Footnote. Quote, Wherever gold and silver have by law been made to perform the function of money or of a measure of value side by side, it has always been tried but in vain to treat them as one and the same material. 
to assume that there is an invariable ratio between the quantities of gold and silver in which a given quantity of labor time is incorporated is to assume in fact that gold and silver are of one and the same material and that a given mass of the less valuable metal silver is a constant fraction of a given mass of gold from the reign of edward the third to the time of george the second the history of money in england consists of one long series of perturbations caused by the clashing of the legally fixed ratio between the values of gold and silver with the fluctuations in their real values at one time gold was too high at another silver the metal that for the time being was estimated below its value was withdrawn from circulation mated and exported the ratio between the two metals was then again altered by law but the new nominal ratio soon came into conflict again with the real one in our own times the slight and transient fall in the value of gold compared with silver was the consequence of the indo-chinese demand for silver produced on a far more extended scale in france the same phenomena export of silver and its expulsion from circulation by gold during the years eighteen fifty five eighteen fifty six and eighteen fifty seven the excess in france of gold imports over gold exports amounted to forty one million five hundred and eighty thousand pounds while the excess of silver exports over silver imports was fourteen million seven hundred and four thousand pounds in fact in those countries in which both metals are legally measures of value and therefore both legal tender so that every one has the option of paying in either metal the metal that rise in value is at a premium and like every other commodity measures its price in the overestimated metal which alone serve in reality as the standard of value the result of all experience in history with regard to this equation is simply that where two commodities perform by law the functions of a measure of value in practice one alone maintains that position karl marx loco citato pages fifty two and fifty three commodities with definite prices present themselves under the form lowercase a commodity capital a equals x gold lowercase b commodity capital b equals z gold lowercase c commodity capital c equals y gold etc where lowercase a b c represent definite quantities of the commodities capital a b c and x y z definite quantities of gold the values of these commodities are therefore changed in imagination into so many different quantities of gold hence in spite of the confusing variety of the commodities themselves their values become magnitudes of the same denomination gold magnitudes they are now capable of being compared with each other and measured and the want becomes technically felt of comparing them with some fixed quantity of gold as a unit measure this unit by subsequent division into aliquot parts becomes itself the standard or scale before they become money gold silver and copper already possess such standard measures in their standards of weight so that for example a pound weight while serving as the unit is on the one hand divisible into ounces and on the other may be combined to make up hundredweights footnote the peculiar circumstance that while the ounce of gold serves in england as the unit of the standard of money the pound sterling does not form an aliquot part of it has been explained as follows quote, our coinage was originally adapted to the employment of silver only hence an ounce of silver can always be divided into a certain adequate number of pieces of coin but as gold was introduced at a later period into a coinage adapted only to silver an ounce of gold cannot be coined into an aliquot number of pieces mclaren a sketch of the history of the currency london eighteen fifty eight page sixteen
End footnote. It is owing to this that, in all metallic currencies, the names given to the standards of money or of price were originally taken from the pre-existing names of the standards of weight. As measure of value, and as standard of price, money has two entirely distinct functions to perform. It is the measure of value inasmuch as it is the socially recognized incarnation of human labor. It is the standard of price inasmuch as it is a fixed weight of metal. As the measure of value, it serves to convert the values of all the manifold commodities into prices, into imaginary quantities of gold. As the standard of price, it measures those quantities of gold. The measure of values measures commodities considered as values. The standard of price measures, on the contrary, quantities of gold by a unit quantity of gold not the value of one quantity of gold by the weight of another. In order to make gold a standard of price, a certain weight must be fixed upon as the unit. In this case, as in all cases of measuring quantities of the same denomination, the establishment of an unvarying unit of measure is all-important. Hence, the less the unit is subject to variation, so much the better does the standard of price fulfill its office. But only in so far as it is itself a product of labor and therefore potentially variable in value can gold serve as a measure of value. Footnote. With English writers the confusion between measure of value and standard of price, standard of value, is indescribable. Their functions, as well as their names, are constantly interchanged. End footnote. It is, in the first place, quite clear that a change in the value of gold does not, in any way, affect its function as a standard of price. No matter how this value varies, the proportions between the values of different quantities of the metal remain constant. However great the fall in its value, twelve ounces of gold still have twelve times the value of one ounce. And in prices, the only thing considered is the relation between different quantities of gold. Since, on the other hand, no rise or fall in the value of an ounce of gold can alter its weight, no alteration can take place in the weight of its aliquot parts. Thus gold always renders the same service as an invariable standard of price, however much its value may vary. In the second place, a change in the value of gold does not interfere with its functions as a measure of value. The change affects all commodities simultaneously, and therefore, characteris paribus, leaves their relatives' values inter se, unaltered, although those values are now expressed in higher or lower gold prices. Just as when we estimate the value of any commodity by a definite quantity of the use value of some other commodity, so in estimating the value of the former in gold, we assume nothing more than that the production of a given quantity of gold costs, at the given period, a given amount of labor. As regards the fluctuations of prices generally, they are subject to the laws of elementary relative value investigated in a former chapter. A general rise in the prices of commodities can result only either from a rise in their values, the value of money remaining constant, or from a fall in the value of money, the values of commodities remaining constant. On the other hand, a general fall in prices can result only either from a fall in the values of commodities, the value of money remaining constant, or from a rise in the value of money, the values of commodities remaining constant. It therefore by no means follows that a rise in the value of money necessarily implies a proportional fall in the prices of commodities, or that a fall in the value of money implies a proportional rise in prices. Such change of price holds good only in the case of commodities whose value remains constant, with those, for example, whose value rises simultaneously with and proportionally to that of money, there is no alteration in price, and if their value rise either slower or faster than that of money, the fall or rise in their prices will be determined by the difference between the change in their value and that of money, and so on. Let us now go back to the consideration of the price form. 
by degrees there arises a discrepancy between the current money names of the various weights of the precious metal figuring as money and the actual weights which those names originally represented this discrepancy is the result of historical causes among which the chief are one the importation of foreign money into an imperfectly developed community this happened in rome in its early days where gold and silver coins circulated at first as foreign commodities the names of these foreign coins never coincide with those of the indigenous weights two as wealth increases the less precious metal is thrust out by the more precious from its place as a measure of value copper by silver silver by gold however much this order of sequence may be in contradiction with poetical chronology footnote moreover it has not general historical validity and footnote the word pound for instance was the money name given to an actual pound weight of silver when gold replaced silver as a measure of value the same name was applied according to the ratio between the values of silver and gold to perhaps one fifteenth of a pound of gold the word pound as a money name thus becomes differentiated from the same word as a weight name footnote it is thus that the pound sterling in english denotes less than one-third of its original weight the pound scot before the union only one thirty-sixth the french livre one seventy-fourth the spanish maravedi less than one thousandth and the portuguese ray a still smaller fraction and footnote three the debasing of money carried on for centuries by kings and princes to such an extent that of the original weights of the coins nothing in fact remained but the names footnote quote, les monotes les quales oggi son ideal sono les puits antiques que d'ogni nazione et toutes furono un tempo real et perque erano reali con essa si contava and quote the coins which to-day are ideal are the oldest coins of every nation and all of them were once real and precisely because they were real they were used for calculation galliani della moneta loci citate page one fifty three and footnote these historical causes convert the separation of the money name from the weight name into an established habit with the community since the standard of money is on the one hand purely conventional and must on the other hand find a general acceptance it is in the end regulated by law a given weight of one of the precious metals an ounce of gold for instance becomes officially divided into aliquot parts with legally bestowed names such as pound dollar etc these aliquot parts which thenceforth serve as units of money are then subdivided into other aliquot parts with legal names such as shilling penny etc footnote david urquhart remarks in his familiar words on the monstrosity that nowadays a pound sterling which is the unit of the english standard of money is equal to about a quarter of an ounce of gold quote, this is falsifying a measure not establishing a standard end quote. he sees in this false denomination of the weight of gold as in everything else the falsifying hand of civilization and footnote but both before and after these divisions are made a definite weight of metal is the standard of metallic money the sole alteration consists in the subdivision and denomination the prices or quantities of golds into which the values of commodities are ideally changed are therefore now expressed in the names of the coins or in the legally valid names of the subdivisions of the gold standard hence instead of saying a quarter of wheat is worth an ounce of gold 
we say it is worth three pounds seventeen shillings ten and a half pence in this way commodities express by their prices how much they are worth and money serves as money of account whenever it is a question of fixing the value of an article in its money form footnote when anacharsis was asked for what purposes the greeks used money he replied for reckoning and footnote the name of a thing is something distinct from the qualities of that thing i know nothing of a man by knowing that his name is jacob in the same way with regard to money every trace of a value relation disappears in the names pound dollar franc ducat etc the confusion caused by attributing a hidden meaning to these capitalistic signs is all the greater because these money names express both the values of commodities and at the same time eloquent parts of the weight of the metal that is the standard of money footnote Quote, owing to the fact that money when serving as the standard of price appears under the same reckoning names as do the prices of commodities and that therefore the sum of three pounds seventeen shillings ten and a half pence may signify on the one hand an ounce weight of gold and on the other the value of a ton of iron this reckoning name of money has been called its mint price hence there sprang up the extraordinary notion that the value of gold is estimated in its own material and that in contradistinction to all other commodities its price is fixed by the state it was erroneously thought that the giving of reckoning names to definite weights of golds is the same thing as fixing the value of those weights End quotes. karl marx local citati page fifty two and footnote on the other hand it is absolutely necessary that value in order that it may be distinguished from the varied bodily forms of commodities should assume this material and unmeaning but at the same time purely social form footnote see theorien von der masseinheit des geldes in zur kritik der pol econ etc page fifty three sequentia the fantastic notions about raising or lowering the mint price of money by transferring to greater or smaller weights of gold or silver the names already legally appropriated to fixed weights of those metals such notions at least in those cases in which they aim not at clumsy financial operations against creditors both public and private but at economic quack remedies have been so exhaustively treated by william petty in his pontilum quinqua concerning money the lord marquis of halifax sixteen eighty two that even his immediate followers sir dudley north and john locke not to mention later ones could only dilute him quote, if the wealth of a nation he remarks could be decoupled by a proclamation it were strange that such proclamations have not long since been made by our governors End quote. Loco citato, page thirty six and a footnote price is the money name of the labor realized in a commodity hence the expression of the equivalence of a commodity with the sum of money constituting its price is a tautology just as in general the expression of the relative value of a commodity is a statement of the equivalence of two commodities footnote quote, ou bien il faut consentir à dire qu'une valeur d'un million en argent vaut plus qu'une valeur égale en marchandise End quote. Quote, or indeed it must be admitted that a million in money is worth more than an equal value in commodities End quote. le trasna loco citato page nine one nine which amounts to saying qu'une valeur vaut plus qu'une valeur égale End quote. Quote, 
that one value is worth more than another value which is equal to it. End quote. End footnote. But although price, being the exponent of the magnitude of a commodity's value, is the exponent of its exchange ratio with money, it does not follow that the exponent of this exchange ratio is necessarily the exponent of the magnitude of the commodity's value. Suppose two equal quantities of socially necessary labor to be respectively represented by one quarter of wheat and two pounds sterling, nearly half an ounce of gold. Two pounds sterling is the expression in money of the magnitude of the value of the quarter of wheat, or is its price. If now circumstances allow of this price being raised to three pounds sterling, or compel it to be reduced to one pound sterling, then although one pound sterling and three pounds sterling may be too small or too great properly to express the magnitude of the wheat's value, nevertheless they are its prices, for they are, in the first place, the form under which the value appears, i.e. money, and in the second place, the exponents of its exchange ratio with money. If the conditions of production, in other words, if the productive power of labor remain constant, the same amount of social labor time must, both before and after the change in price, be expended in the reproduction of a quarter of wheat. This circumstance depends neither on the will of the wheat producer nor on that of the owners of other commodities. Magnitude of value expresses a relation of social production. It expresses the connection that necessarily exists between a certain article and the portion of the total labor time of society required to produce it. As soon as magnitude of value is converted into price, the above necessary relation takes the shape of a more or less accidental exchange ratio between a single commodity and another, the money commodity. But this exchange ratio may express either the real magnitude of that commodity's value or the quantity of gold deviating from that value for which, according to circumstances, it may be parted with. The possibility, therefore, of quantitative incongruity between price and magnitude of value, or the deviation of the former from the latter, is inherent in the price form itself. This is no defect, but, on the contrary, admirably adapts the price form to a mode of production whose inherent laws impose themselves only as the mean of apparently lawless irregularities that compensate one another. The price form, however, is not only compatible with the possibility of a quantitative incongruity between magnitude of value and price, i.e., between the former and its expression in money, but it may also conceal a qualitative inconsistency, so much so that although money is nothing but the value form of commodities, price ceases altogether to express value. Objects that in themselves are no commodities, such as conscience, honor, etc., are capable of being offered for sale by their holders, and of thus acquiring, through their price, the form of commodities. Hence an object may have a price without having value. The price in that case is imaginary, like certain quantities in mathematics. On the other hand, the imaginary price form may sometimes conceal either a direct or indirect real value relation. For instance, the price of uncultivated land, which is without value, because no human labor has been incorporated in it. Price, like relative value in general, expresses the value of a commodity, e.g. a ton of iron, by stating that a given quantity of the equivalent, e.g. an ounce of gold, is directly exchangeable for iron, but it by no means states the converse, that iron is directly exchangeable for gold. 
In order, therefore, that a commodity may in practice act effectively as an exchange value, it must quit its bodily shape, must transform itself from mere imaginary into real gold, although to the commodity such transubstantiation may be more difficult than to the Hegelian concept, the transition from necessity to freedom, or to a lobster the casting of his shell, or to St. Jeremy the putting off of the old Adam. Footnote. Jeremy had to wrestle hard, not only in his youth, with the bodily flesh, as is shown by his fight in the desert with the handsome women of his imagination, but also in his old age with the spiritual flesh. I thought, he says, I was in the spirit before the judge of the universe. Who art thou? asked a voice. I am a Christian. Thou liest, thundered back the great judge. Thou art not but a Ciceronian. End footnote. Though a commodity may, side by side with its actual form, iron for instance, take in our imagination the form of gold, yet it cannot at one and the same time actually be both iron and gold. To fix its price, it suffices to equate it to gold in imagination. But to enable it to render to its owner the service of a universal equivalent, it must be actually replaced by gold. If the owner of the iron were to go to the owner of some other commodity offered for exchange, and were to refer him to the price of the iron as proof that it was already money, he would get the same answer as St. Peter gave in heaven to Dante when the later recited the creed, Asad bene e trascorsa, desta moneta ja la lega el peso, ma dimi se tu lai nella tua borsa. A price, therefore, implies both that a commodity is exchangeable for money, and also that it must be so exchanged. On the other hand, gold serves as an ideal measure of value, only because it has already, in the process of exchange, established itself as the money commodity. Under the ideal measure of values there lurks the hard cash. End of Part 1, Chapter 3, Section 1